You guys can be seated. Um, welcome to Grace City, y'all. Good morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Kincaid. Um, I serve as a student minister on staff here with Macy. Um, and if this is your first time, I'm sorry. Uh, we have a great teaching team here. Nathan's great. Uh, Matt can throw down with the best of them. Dr. Weeks is great if you bring a thesaurus with you. I remember the first time I ever came to a Grace City service. I snuck in and I sat in the back right back there, or backstage right, and I was taking notes because just like when you, when you come on staff at a church and you're interviewing process, like you want to know what the vibe in the room was like. So I came and I was taking notes and halfway through Weeks' message, I just started writing down words that he said that I didn't understand what they meant. And then eventually like the entire document was just words, Weeks' words that I had no idea what they meant. But like I was saying, my name is Kincaid and I don't want to go any further without just thanking y'all for making my transition easy coming on staff and even just supporting the student ministry if it's on our Sunday mornings whenever we're here with our on-campus students or on Sunday nights at four across the street at, at Chastain where we do our city groups in three feet of mud, play football. Y'all have just really enabled us, if by your giving or just by your time, have really enabled us to do what we've been called to do in this city and in this moment, and I can't thank you for that enough. Um, whenever we first started talking about this, I specifically asked Evan to play What a Friend We Have in Jesus, just because I think it's a very good perspective shift going into this new series when people meet Jesus. Um, so often, like maybe it's just me, but I, a lot of times I think of Jesus as just like on a cloud with a lightning bolt waiting on me to sin. And the second I sin is just, Zhoosh! I don't think that's the noise lightning bolts make. But either way, that's how I look at it. And it's, it's just what a friend he is to us and what a privilege we have to worship him like, in his presence constantly. And he's someone we can lean on, someone to rely on, and someone to give our heaviest moments with or even our best moments. So often I feel like it's one or the other. That's not how it is. Jesus is a true friend. Um, and whenever Nathan brought this up to me and, and told me that I'd be speaking about my favorite story about Jesus, the first thing that came to mind almost instantly was John 11. Um, and y'all may recognize that as the story of Lazarus being healed. And that is what happens in this chapter, but I want to focus specifically more on leading up to that moment. And we talk about it in John 11, 32 through 35. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which is a really tough way to walk into a situation, I think. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Uh, John eleven thirty five 35 is where I think we'll be focusing, and, and more specifically about Jesus' weeping. Um, I think it's, it says so much about who Jesus is and a commentary while I was studying, it read that John eleven thirty five 35 is the least verse in the Bible, yet inferior to none. It's a very short verse. It seems almost self-explanatory. Two words, Jesus wept, and, and that's it. That's all that comes into it. But I really think there's something we can learn from this short verse. Um, and to give you a little more context, Lazarus, the man who had passed away, was the brother of Mary and Martha, and Jesus deeply loved all three of them. And I'm going to kind of let my student ministry color show here and make a really wild transition. Uh, just by show of hands, how many people have ever seen the movie Marley and Me? Okay, cool. If you didn't raise your hand, don't go watch it. It's a horrible film. It was advertised as this super family-friendly movie you can go and watch, and there's like a super cute Labrador retriever, and the whole thing was built around Marley and Marley brings like all the family together. It was Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston, and it just brought the whole family closer together because the dog was cute, but it was a bad dog. So it would, like there'd be montages of them chasing it on the beach and stuff like that. And it was such a such a cool movie. It was such a great movie. It was such a good dog. And then at the end, spoiler alert: cover your ears if you want to watch it or add it to your watch list. But Marley dies. 
And I was an eight-year-old kid in the movie theater, and I remember sitting there and just weeping into this bag of popcorn. The popcorn was empty. I'll give you all that. Anytime I go to the movie theater, like automatically, the popcorn doesn't make it past the second trailer, y'all. If food is in front of me, I'm eating it, and there's no way anything else is going to happen. And to weep in the Greek, and specifically in that verse, means that cruo. Um, and that verse, and that, that Greek word is used again in Isaiah 53, 3, where it says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And I think when we look at this moment in John eleven thirty five, 35, where, where Jesus took a moment to weep before performing any miracles, I think it says three things about his character and his response in that moment. And the first one, I think, is empathetic. Uh, I, I don't believe, and I'm almost positive, that Jesus was not crying over the death of his friend. If we truly believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then he walked into that situation with the answer with him. Jesus did not fear death. He was not worried about his friend not coming back. I believe in that moment that Jesus was weeping over the heaviness and the mourning of the sisters Mary and Martha and just the empathy that Jesus had in that moment. And there's a verse specifically that talks about Jesus' ability to swallow up death. It was foreshadowed in Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I think in that moment, Jesus was empathetic for the sisters in their mourning, and he was empathetic for the people who were coming to crucify him in the coming weeks after this miracle. I think the second thing this says about Jesus' character is that he was fully human in this moment. I think his response of weeping is, is profound, and it's profoundly human, to put it that way. But in that moment, Jesus had a choice on how he wanted to respond, and he responded as a man and as a friend first. And it talks about his human nature in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And like I was saying, Jesus had a choice of response here. He had, he had a chance to respond as either a savior or first simply a shoulder to cry on. I feel like in ministry, or at least in my case, we walk into these situations being problem solvers. If I have a student that's going through something, and it's almost easier just for me to say, well, if you just did this, if you prayed more often, if you stopped listening to rap music all the time, if you stopped doing this or this or this, and your life would be better. And, and I, I may be right in that situation, but that may not be the first response that they need to hear. Um, this comes up uh, in my relationship with my girlfriend pretty often. Uh, no matter what her ailment is when she brings it to me, if it's, hey, Kincaid, I have a headache, I always say, no matter what, have you drank water today? Which, you know, it's not a bad idea. Hydration is good and everything. And so she comes up, hey, Kincaid, I have a stomachache. Have you drank water today? Or, hey, Kincaid, I'm going through this. Have you drank water today? Hey, Kincaid, you're being really annoying today. Well, have you drank water today? Uh, and that one usually doesn't go over very well. But the, the, the reason I say that, and, and it may seem funny, is that so often it's easier for us to just walk in and say, well, this is how you fix your problem. It's simple. Just do this and fix your problem. But so often I think we have a choice on how to respond, and it's better to respond as a shoulder to cry on first than a problem solver. Uh, the third thing I think it says about Jesus' character and his response is that he was present. He was present. And I want to park here for a second. Uh, for some reason, when I, I write messages, the title comes to me first. And I titled this message, The Power of Presence. And 
I think there's something beautiful and powerful in meeting people where they are and just being with them. Before Jesus healed, before he could have just walked in there, raised Lazarus, and made it back in time to go get lunch. But instead, Jesus decided to be in the moment. He was present in the moment with his people and with his emotions. And David talks about how we serve an omnipresent God. And when I think of omnipresence, it's almost like... God has bigger things to deal with than me right now. And, and it's, we serve such an amazing God, and that's not how he sees it. But David talks about this omnipresence in Psalm 139, 7 through 10. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Spoiler alert, y'all didn't see that. <laughs> Your right hand will hold me fast. And, and no matter where we go, whether we're in our greatest moments of triumph or graduations or Super Bowls or whatever it may be, and even when we're in our darkest moments, those depressive seasons where we feel like no one is with us and no one's around us, Jesus is even with us there. And when I think about presence, I think about my relationship with my father. And if, you, if you've been around me at all, I'm very open and honest about that. And I always felt like my dad lived in South Louisiana, and so we would always have to make the trip down. Even if it was Christmas or my birthday, I would always have to make the trip down. No matter what was going on, football games were missed, basketball games were missed, but I would always have to go to him. And I had a mentor in Birmingham who told me that we look at God through the lens of our father. And so growing up, I I struggled with my relationship with God because I felt as though I had to bring something to him. I had to be a certain thing. I had to act a certain way. I had to tie my tie perfectly. I don't wear ties. I don't know why I said that. But I had to be a certain thing to reach God. And and that's just not how it is. And the best example of presence I think I've had in my life is is a mentor by the name of Michael that I was talking about. I was was in ministry school, so I wasn't that crazy. But I was pretty crazy for middle school. um, Or not middle school, ministry school. Um, And whenever you're in those situations, Michael saw me for who I was. He didn't see the way I was acting, the way I was misbehaving, but he saw me as a heart. He saw me as someone who was broken for God. And if nothing else, being present may just mean in your situation that, that I see you. I see your pain. You're not suffering alone. Like the song said, you have never been abandoned. That's never crossed his mind. And I have a question, um, and it's one that I try to ask myself as much as possible. Whenever I kind of message prep, the way I can tell if it's a good message is how convicted I am when I'm writing it. Um, and I ask myself this as often as possible when I'm on staff with Nathan Bryant, so I have to challenge y'all this morning. It's on brand for our staff. And my question for us in this latter half of the message is, do I weep for what he weeps for? Do we as people weep for what Jesus wept for? Does Kincaid weep for what breaks Jesus' heart? Do we weep for what he weeps for? And I think there are three things that we see in, in in this short verse of Scripture of things that he wept for. And the first one, do I weep for what he weeps for? The first one is my people. Do we weep for my people? In the situation, in the verses, Jesus wept not because of the death of Lazarus, but because of the heaviness and the mourning that Mary and Martha were going through. And he loved Mary and Martha deeply. Do we weep for our people? When we have family members that are struggling with, with a hard time or friends or even just in a church, if, we're, if we see somebody that's down and, and we feel their heaviness, do we weep for what they weep for, for what God weeps for? And it talks about this in Psalm 133 and 1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And that's the goal, y'all, is living together in unity. When we left our staff retreat last weekend, something we decided as a staff is that we'd be a united staff pursuing life change. And that's the goal, y'all. This is what it's all about. 
if you see someone in church or a family member or something like that that's going through something, you have an opportunity in that moment to respond the same way Jesus did. And for each one of these points, I have a little challenge for you this week. And just because I think it makes it a little more fun and a little more applicable, but my challenge for this is, guys, just reach out to three people you care about. Maybe, maybe family members, maybe friends, or whoever it is that maybe you haven't reached out to in a long time. But they're your people. And if they're going through something, then you have an opportunity to respond the same way Jesus did. The second thing that I think Jesus wept for in John eleven thirty five is the lost. And I don't know if you kind of drive in or in a bubble or you may not live in Jackson specifically, but guys, we're in a city that's hurting. This church is planted in a city that's broken in so many different ways. And you see it on Northside or you see it when you're driving down Lakeland if there's someone asking for money. There's, there's so much brokenness in our world and in the country. And we have a choice the same way Jesus did to either try to rush and solve the problems and say, if you do this or do this or do this, you wouldn't struggle with it. Or we can just sit beside them and say, hey, I feel it. I understand you're carrying a lot. I have an extra shoulder. I can carry a bag with you. And whenever I talk about this point specifically, the first thing that comes to mind is always my Chastain students, guys. Like these students are, are hurting and they're confused and they're anxious and they're unsure. And the best way I can put it, and whenever I think about it, whenever I pray for these students, they have a God-sized hole. And they don't know that they do. They don't understand why they feel this way, but they fill it with so many different things. And they try to fix this God-sized hole that they have within them. And they come from broken households, and they're confused, and they're anxious, and they're unsure. And the verse that I have for this is, um, I'm letting you into a secret about what church is and why we do what we do. But Romans 10.1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And guys, I'm tempted to just stop the message right there, because that, that's the whole point. Whenever, whenever the first time I read this and whenever I'm praying for my students, I always replace Israel with one of their names because my heart's desire and prayer to God for Sherrod or my, heart, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Jamari, my heart's desire and prayer for Grace City, my heart's desire and prayer for Jackson is that they might be saved. Guys, that's why we do what we do. And whenever people come to me and, and they always, people have always for some reason asked me what like the secret sauce to what I do or how I have the patience that I have. And I look at this and I say, well, whenever somebody read this verse, they put my name there. The same way I say Sherrod, the same way I said Jamar, there was someone in my life that was praying for me deeply and saying that my prayer for Kincaid is that he might be saved. And we see that with all of our students and the brokenness and, and the trembling and the anxiety and the unsureness that they live in that's why every morning I look at this verse and I say, my, my desire and my prayer for these students is that they might be saved. And I know with a lot of, it's kind of intimidating doing what I do. In, in city groups, we play football at, at 4 o'clock and we usually play in three feet of mud. And I want to talk to you all about an opportunity that we have if maybe you don't have the passion for messing up all the clothes you have in your closet like I have or losing a couple pair of cleats in three feet of mud. But we have an opportunity that we, we've identified 10 Chastain students that I think we can take with us to camp, and unfortunately, the only thing that's stopping them is, is the money, and their, their parents don't understand, it, and, it's, and it's hard to raise money for those students, and I just want to present that opportunity to y'all, if y'all feel desired to. Those students are hungry, and they're, push, they're, they're filling that God-sized hole with things that they don't understand, and they're reaching for things that they don't understand, and we have an opportunity, and, and the whole point of what I do is that they might be saved, and I think that camp is a great opportunity for that. And I have a sentence whenever, uh, whenever a student comes up to me and says, hey, Kincaid, like, I have to tell you something. My heart drops first, and I'm like, oh, gosh, what am I about to hear? But I have a sentence that, that I always say before we go into these conversations because I feel like there's a lot of intimidation and things. And my sentence is that I will be here regardless. 
no matter what you say, no matter what you did, no matter how you feel about me in this moment, I will be here regardless. You can disrespect me, you can, you can hate me, you can cuss me out, but whether or not you feel better, whether or not you act better, or whether or not you live better, I am here. I will be here regardless. And, a lot of, and then this is another situation where people come up to me and I say, okay, you just have so much patience for these students. You have just something supernatural. And, and the only reason that, that I can say that to those students is because we serve a God that said that to me. I serve a God that said, Kincaid, no matter what you do, no matter how far you go, no matter how badly you act, no matter how much music you listen to, no matter where you go, I will be here regardless. We can never run too far from where the grace of God cannot reach us. And, and he's saying the same things to those students. And the fact that I have the opportunity to be the conduit to say that to those students is awesome. And, and Macy does an amazing job as well. But we can never run too far. And, and my challenge for this is just identify three people you can pray for. Maybe not people in your life, but maybe the lost or someone at your work that you see that, that kind of walks around with a heavy heart or, or a certain people at, at a job or anything like that. Like, find and identify those three people and maybe not tell them or don't lay hands on anybody in a Cain's parking lot, please, and say, Kincaid told me to do this. But just, just identify those three people. And, and I think that's a great, a great thing and a great challenge for this. And the third and the final thing that I, I think that Jesus weeps for in this moment is I think he weeps for our enemies, or, or not my people. So often it's like, we don't really have enemies. I don't like look at chance, and I'm not like, ah, chance, my nemesis. Like, we don't really have that in the modern day, but we don't really have nemesis or anything like that. But it really does unlock something whenever we pray for somebody that we may not like or may disagree with. Matthew 5, 43 through 48 talks about that in depth. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise from the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you've ever been in a five-mile radius of me on a Saturday night in the fall, you're probably aware that I am a pretty diehard LSU fan. Um, and whenever I spoke on a, a message similar to this in Texas and uh, just talking about how praying for the people that you may not agree with kind of unlocks something within us, I had a student walk up to me, and this was uh, after Alabama pre LSU, beat LSU pretty badly. Um, he walks up to me, and if you've ever talked to a sixth grader, they have these big, lofty questions that are hard to answer. And so... The sixth grader walks up to me, taps me on my shoulder, and he looks up to me with these big eyes, and he's like, Kincaid, if we pray for our enemies, does that mean you pray for Nick Saban every morning? <laughs> and I looked at that student with all the breath in my lungs, and I said, absolutely not. I don't. <laughs> but all, I'm saying that not to go against my point here, but I'm saying that to say that I haven't made it. I haven't arrived yet. You haven't arrived yet. But we are constantly pursuing to be more like Jesus. And you can ask me anytime, anytime you see me for the rest of my career here at Grace City, and if I ever say yes... Y'all will know that I have made it as a minister. That is the peak. That is as good as I get right there. Um, and this, I say this in closing, but we're presented with a choice every day. Like we drive, we drive on Lakeland. Like we, we drive on Northside when we come to church. We see the brokenness of our city. If you drive on Dunbar Street, which is my home street, you're going to lose a, a rim or two. And we're, Jackson's literally broken in that way too. But we are presented with a choice every day. We see the same brokenness that Jesus saw. We feel the same mourning and the heaviness he felt, and we have an opportunity to respond to it the same, with the same empathy and compassion that Jesus showed for us. Pray with me. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for just giving us the opportunity and the capability to have these emotions and have this morning feeling, God. I thank you for everything you've done for us here at Grace City, whether it be at city groups or the events that we're putting on. God, I ask that as we leave tonight or we leave this morning that we become people who, who feel and we weep for what you weep for, God, and that our hearts break for what your heart breaks for, whether it's students at Chastain or it's just people on the side of the road asking for money. God, I ask that as we go throughout our lives, you continue to give us a fresh heart. In Jesus' name, amen.